Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. And I said, I want to win the league, but I want to win it better. You can understand that, can't you? Yes. Good luck. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. <laughs> second captain, first captain, whatever. A rivalry between two teams in most sports would be considered dead, I would think, if one of those teams hadn't beaten the other one in 34 years. But such is the enduring appeal of Dublin Kerry that the term rivalry was still being used in the build-up to the All-Ireland Final in 2011, despite the fact that the Dubs hadn't beaten Kerry in the Championship since 1977. I think the, the big problem that the Dublin Kerry rivalry actually had was that... You know, if, if, if one team if, kept winning, yeah, well, that was it, right? And it would have been dead, as you say, if Dublin people didn't continually expect to then beat Kerry. That's really where the rivalry. That was that's the lifeblood. But remember, seventy-seven, Murph. Yeah, that's basically the lifeblood of the Dublin Kerry rivalry. Dublin's arrogance coming into every game against <laughs> Kerry, which then kind of made it made it into this this big occasion. I'd say it's more of a smouldering resentment. Mm. There's Kerry, the aristocrats, uh, sort of landowners in a big uh, Gandon-style mansion, and uh, circled in the woods really? are the peasants of Dublin. Yeah, uh, angry, you know, having to pay all this rent to the to keep the landlord in the south, which he's accustomed, having to subdivide their plots of land among among their uh, sons, and growing poorer and poorer, uh, and more and more oppressed under the iron heel of. The kingdom, Kerry, exactly the as kingdom, they, as they call themselves. As they, course, as yeah. they, mm-hmm. the self-styled kingdom, and it's an interpretation. I Ed. suppose it's a belief, it's a hope. I mean, what you call arrogance is a, is a hope that wells up from within. You know, call it call it madness. Call it, you know, I call mm. it hope. And one of these days, that big James Gandon mansion is going to burn. <laughs> well, you could say Imagine that it already it's has. Look with I mean, flames shooting out. Yeah, uh, the windows, the windows you popping, know? you know, caving in. Yeah, now, I, to be honest, I think probably the 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 landlord's house has already been stormed two years ago. You know, yeah. Kerry did finally. Kerry were you know four points up going into the last ten minutes of an iron final. But it's the best way. If you're going to storm a house, you just got to take them by surprise. Do it late doors. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, maybe, maybe I don't know, but it's whatever about that. The rivalry, um, it has gotten a big shot in the arm by the fact that Dublin did actually beat Kerry two years ago, uh, but. I think Kerry people are at the same time kind of licking their lips a little at just how Doesn't amazingly matter. brilliant this Dublin team that haven't really beaten anyone yet uh, is being described as, as being, you know? Doesn't really matter though, Murph. We can sit back and relax, us dubs. All we have to do is win one of these every 34 years and the rivalry <laughs> stays alive. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So there's another 32 years of hurt 
coming down the track zone. We're talking to Darrow Shea and Malachy Clerkin in just a little while. Ever wonder why Jamaica has the fastest sprinters in the world? Ever wonder that, Murph? Yes, of course okay. I have. And Often, it keeps me up nights. Why Kenya and Ethiopia have the best distance runners, at least until Mo Farah came along? Well, it's got to be something to do with... He is training, local, though. He's he's Somalian, sort of. I mean, he's British, but he's he's also from that same type of area. Which ties in with the uh, what the author, David Epstein says is the reason for sporting excellence, at least in some sports. Ken, this is a book that David Epstein, the American journalist, has brought out and you've been devouring over the last few days. Really, really interesting book. I mean, there's been a few uh, of these kind of thoughtful um, sports books published. I mean, Malcolm Gladwell's Outliers isn't really a sports book, though it does have things to say about sport. Um, There's Bounce by Matthew Syed, uh, The Talent Code by uh, Dan Coyle, and so on. And all of these books are saying in slightly different ways that don't worry about talent. You aren't necessarily predestined to be good or bad at anything. What really makes the difference is practice, work. That's how you can develop uh, expertise in a whole range of fields. And the question is really uh, whether you're prepared to put that work in, whether you do that work. That's what's going to make the difference and not something innate within you, not what you are, essentially. Brian or David Epstein, rather Brian Epstein, David Epstein is saying <laughs> something a little bit different. Owen, uh, he is saying that in fact, uh, doesn't matter how much work you do, if you're not born in the right place, you're in big, big trouble. You know, sometimes you just don't have it. Mm. I mean, everybody's got different things, and uh, and let's not rule out the the importance of those innate factors. But he's talking about genes here, sporting genes. He's talking about he's talking about. I mean, the book is called the sports gene, which is kind of a mis- misnomer because there is no sports gene. We're not going to ask him that question. I've heard him being, asked, "What is the sports gene?" There is no sports gene. Uh, genetics is very complicated. I mean, it, you know, he talks about how the, the human genome was finally sequenced a few years ago to this huge excitement. You know, everyone was like, "Oh, we're finally going to figure out how to build a human, custom design a human." You know, with all the uh, and then once it was sequenced, people were like, oh, no, this is really, really complicated. We can't quite figure out which gene controls which attribute. And in fact, most attributes are controlled by a combination of genes. And it's really tough to work mm. out. So, um, Who would have thought that this would be so confusing? It's going to take much longer than we thought. <laughs> but, uh, you, know, he, you know, he's essentially starting from the perspective of, look, you know, we talk about 10,000. In the, in the case of the 10,000 hour rule, for instance, which, which is a famous kind of slogan that came out of Outliers, it's based on a scientific study. Um, it wasn't Malcolm Gladwell's study, Kay Anders Ericsson is the name of the scientist. But essentially, he had studied a load of uh, violinists in Berlin, um, you know, master musicians. And he realized that they had essentially done an average of about 10,000 hours of practice to attain their elite level. Of, of expertise. Um, and Epstein is kind of saying, well, the thing about that is that you, you've, you've already, you're look, the sample that you're looking at is already kind of skewed. You're talking about really, you know, elite musicians to begin with, you know, so it's, it's not a representative sample. And also within that group itself, you've got these massive variations. Some people take not, much less time than 10,000 hours. Some people take much more time. So there's obviously some difference there. And he, you know, we're going to we're going to be talking to him, I think, a good bit on about uh, Jamaica, small country, three million people, all the best sprinters in the world, seemingly Kenya, um, a twenty million a country of twenty million people, one tribe in Kenya, the Kalenjin, four million people in that tribe. They produce nearly all the elite distance runners. It's it's incredible. The statistics for Kenya are actually even more astonishing than for Jamaica. He makes the point that say, you know, if you're looking at the 
the Olympic 100 metres final since 1980. I mean, this is something that everybody understands, I suppose. But since 1980, when there was a boycott in, in the Moscow Olympics, every single finalist in Olympic 100 metres final has been of West African origin. It doesn't matter what country they're for. You know, Ben Johnson's competing for Canada via Jamaica, but it, his, his ancestry is West African. Every single... Uh, person who has reached that elite level has the come final, from not the winner. The, the final, fi- the yeah. final. All, you know, eight eight men in the final. Uh, all of them since nineteen eighty have been since well since nineteen eighty four I should say have been of that West African origin. So, what's going on? You know, wh- why is it that uh, that uh, people from that ancestry tend to or th- that the best printers always have that ancestry? So questions like that are uh, are in this book. Sometimes quite controversial questions. Um, you know, they ha- it, ha- it has obviously been a, a hugely sensitive area in the past, but we're going to talk to him about uh, some of those things. Great, sounds good. We'll also be talking to US Murph about this. Mike Webster is top 100 players of the century and the best center ever to play the game. There was this change in personality where he didn't trust anybody. He thought everybody was out to get him. That wasn't the mic I knew and loved. That was the brain injuries. He was homeless and he was living in the bus station. It wasn't until 2002 when Mike dies for the first time, physical evidence. Mike Webster is on the autopsy table. I was not aware of who Mike Webster was. I didn't know what a Super Bowl was. This fall, the inside story. This is a new disease. Of a discovery that could change the game forever. And it's never been reported before in a football player. These players come down with dementia and then Alzheimer's and then they're gone. Yeah, that's a program that's being made by PBS Frontline Public Service Broadcasting over in the US about, it's self-explanatory, I hope, to a point anyway, an investigative documentary called League of Denial, the NFL Concussions and the Battle for Truth. The NFL at the moment is engaged in a legal dispute. More than 4,000 retired players and their families who claim the league concealed what it knew about the long-term dangers of concussion. I say this program was being made by PBS. It was also being made in conjunction with ESPN up until, certainly according to the New York Times, up until the boss man at ESPN met up with the boss man at the NFL who said, hey, hang on a second, haven't you noticed you're, you're one of our main here. partners here? You broadcast our matches, um, we, we get on great, yeah. and we don't want you involved in this. Shortly after that lunch, ESPN pulled out. Now, they deny this, the, the NFL deny there was pressure, but it's, there's a lot of evidence to suggest that there was a certain amount of pressure applied there. So it raises a huge amount of questions, uh, questions on the ESPN side, in that there is a, a newsroom there, there are serious kind of news journalists there, but are they being allowed to do their job or are the commercial imperatives overriding them at the moment? And also from the NFL's point of view, what have you got to hide? Just yeah. let these programs go out there. If the evidence isn't, isn't there, it's not there. Well, I think that's, you know, the, the second point that you make there on is, is to really... What do the NFL think they're doing? Do they think they can cover this up? All they're doing by that is drawing more attention to a problem that people are increasingly aware of. You know, forcing ESPN or strong-arming ESPN to, to not get involved in it isn't going to stop the thing getting made. It's just going to make people more determined to, to draw attention to it. As regards ESPN, it is a fact of life that pretty much every media organization, you could compare it to Human Eye, Owen. Uh, human Eye looks out, it's a wondrous uh, you know, takes in the world filters it through to the brain, passes, passes those messages on. But what does every human eye have? Uh, Eyelash? Retina? Uh, there's actually, there's a lot of things, in fact, that are very similar. <laughs> so. there, I would say that most, there is a uniformity to the human eye. Human eye has a blind spot 
where the little stalk comes out the back of it and attaches to the brain. And can't see anything there. Now, you don't notice it. You don't even notice when you're looking around. But there are two blind spots in your vision. You know, one eye kind of covers up the other eye's one mm. and so on and so forth. Every media organization is a little bit like that. Mm. And the blind spot is where the stalk attaches to the media organization and then goes to the placenta of its of its mother or owner. <laughs> it's, uh, the, you know, the, the very God, rich you're man. you're in rare form. <laughs> the very rich man. You really are. And it tends, it tends to be the case that oftentimes media organizations don't want to... You know, he who pays the piper calls the tune. Yeah. The monkey doesn't turn around to the organ grinder and say, you know, and, and, and try and slap him in the face or whatever. So you, you got to correct for that when you're looking at what media organizations It's a world record amount of analogies. I think it really opening. is. In the last five, five or ten minutes. minutes of the show. Serious amount of imagine of P. Right. Bezos coming into us as well. I know you're going to yeah, get through Yeah, I them. know. You just can't believe how many P. Bezos we've got. First up, the football, though, despite the importance of the 2011 final, which we've been talking about, you want us to focus on with an eye to what's going to happen on Sunday on 2009 when Dublin got wiped. Yeah, well, I mean, they played each other plenty of times in the 1970s and the 1980s and uh, they played each other most recently in 2011. But the 2009 game, a lot of people have been drawing a lot of comparison to it mainly because of the fact that, like uh, as now, uh, Kerry are coming into this very much under the radar. They feel like they, they, they haven't had to do a whole lot to get to this stage. And... In the absence of any sort of form line for Kerry, uh, we're kind of presuming that they've got the that they've got the, the ability to beat Dublin. Malachi the Clerken, mystique, you see on. Yeah, Malachi Clerken is with us in studio. Malachi, is it a fair comparison between what happened in two thousand and nine and what's happening at the moment in the build up to this year? Well, there's a uh, there's a couple of things that are a little different. Um, I don't know that uh, Kerry are being written off as much this year as they were that year. Um, Kerry came through the qualifiers. Uh, really sort of limped through it through the qualifiers that year against um, Longford, Sligo and Antrim and you know Sligo had a penalty late on to beat them and they there was talks of rows in the camp there was just not uh, to the outside world a good atmosphere with, with the Kerry team um, and by a sort of similar token Dublin weren't really as, as hyped then as they are now uh, Maybe hyped is the wrong word, but they had come. People thought that they were a, a very good team. They'd come through Leinster as they had, like they were after winning their fifth Leinster in a row. But they had come through a real test in the Leinster final, whereby they had lost. Jer Brennan got sent off early enough in the first half, um, and still come through and beat Kildare by three points. Um, and it was maybe the first day, or maybe not the first day, but one of the, the real days where Bernard Brogan really made his name. He had a, a brilliant game. Um, and so people sort of looked at the, the two sides coming in and where they thought, OK, this Dublin team has something about them. I don't know that they were even favourites for the All-Ireland at that point. I, I can't quite remember whether they were or not. But the the mood music around the game was really just how how much trouble Kerry were in. Like, they had... They had just not done anything impressive and they were coming to an All-Ireland quarterfinal on a bank holiday Monday against Dublin in a full Croke Park and all of this. And the general consensus was that this was they were in serious trouble here and they weren't going to come through it. Darrow Shea's been listening. Darrow, we know now that that was a great mindset to go in with, but you did describe a great scene in your Irish Times column this week on the bus back from that qualifier against Antrim, you hear the draw to play Dublin. Now, you say there wasn't a cheer, but it sounds like it wasn't far off that. 
no, it wasn't a cheer because I tell you, we, we were expecting a bit of a backlash from the Kerry supporters at the time because we weren't, like Maliki said, Kerry weren't impressive at any stage, you know, in the build-up to that game. And um, it didn't look, you know, you look for, you look for, I suppose, signs or some kind of an indication that it's going to improve. But they weren't, maybe a small bit, Mike McCarthy was probably the only fellow that kind of, you know, held up his end of the bargain above and Tullamore that day against Antrim. But going into the game, whatever it was about Dublin, you see, it's, 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 and he just, again, from the outside looking in this time, you know, if you're coming in against Dublin, and yes, Dublin have all the aces. There's no question about that. And I mean, you, you want to be foolish to think that. But it's just, you know, like you said, what, what is it about it? It's, it's, again, it's, it's Crow Park, it's a full house, it's a semi final, and it's the Dubs. So, I mean, any Kerry footballer worth his thoughts, you couldn't pass up this opportunity to make your name, you know? Were there doubts in your mind, though, about the Kerry team at that point? You pulled out this amazing performance against Dublin, but where had that been all season up to then? Well, funny, it was, um, there was different guys kind of spoke, you know, there was different guys. Um, Jack was in charge at the time. And it, it wasn't any table banging or anything. It was a fairly structured approach to the whole thing. And Eamon Fitzmaurice was involved that day as well. So he knows exactly what, you know, Eamon was in selection that day. And it was fairly structured. You know, you, you break it down no more than what both teams will be doing the next day. I mean, tactically, both teams are going to have their own ideas on how to win the game. Kerry will have their ideas and Dublin will have their ideas. But it's it's basically, it's it's that plan. The one thing that was kind of, I suppose, collective about the whole group that we faced Dublin that time was that the way we were going to beat Dublin was collectively. We couldn't beat them individually with uh, one guy doing it. Or To beat Dublin, we had to have at least minimum of 13 fellas performing. So that's kind of the, your whole team as such. You know, whereas at the time Dublin were all Dublin were getting their score spread from a load of different. Now that said, like Kerry were lucky enough in certain areas. If you go back to that game, you know we 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 sailed close to the win that day as well. If you remember, Alan Brogan hit the punt the crossbar, as did Jim Connolly. That was two goals in the first half that could have brought Dublin back into that game. Kerry kind of, you know, that said, no, Kerry's point taking was very impressive and Kerry winning the ascendancy. But that there was two goal chances in that first half that could have leveled things out a bit. But it was just, to answer your question, it was a kind of a collective mindset that was that basically that we had to dismantle Dublin. You do X, Y, and Z in the first half. We regroup. You go to the second half and you do A, B, and C. And then that, that's basically how, how it was done, you know, and you focus on different... You focus on the... We, I remember the time we focused on their strength. And we, it's a bit like Cody, with what Brian Cody does with, with, with teams. You know, he goes to the juggler. He goes to their strongest place. And, and you know, it's, for a team then as well, when you see your strongest, well, what's perceived to be your strongest line or your strongest pairing or your strongest, you know, division of the team, when you see that dismantled, then it's disheartening to the rest of the group. What was that at the time, do you remember? At the time, I mean, Adam or Bernard Brogan, the two Brogans were obviously very strong. That was one area we focused on. Another area we focused on was probably clocks and the kickouts. You know, we we felt at the time that that was a big thing, and we pushed up, and we didn't give him too many options at that. You know, so we had to, he put every. He, there was no. We we felt a lot of the kickouts were coming, um, were being caught. And again, if you look at the stats for the coming into the game next Sunday, I mean, it's an unusual stat that both the wing forwards, Paul Finn and Jim Conley, have caught more kickouts from their own kickouts than the two midfielders. Yeah, you know, yeah. So, and they catch It's not really even catching on over their head. They're catching them in the chest. You know, so that kind of space can't be allowed. You can't let a guy in the modern game. You can't let a guy run in and catch it on his chest. You know, that that's not good enough. So, like midfielders and halfbacks and half forwards really have to be defenders when that when when Cluxon is on the game. Because look, there's no question about it. He's, he's an exceptional kicker, and they base that. You know, whoever's receiving the ball, then that's where the whole that's the launch pad for most of the double attacks in my mind. I mean, you've got Jack McCarthy, you've got James McCarthy, you've got all these guys bombing on Michael Darren McCauley, who actually turns into an attacker that stage as well. 
So all these things are based on clubs and kickoffs. So that would be a focal point for Terry. That would be a kind of a place where you gear up for, you know. Malachi, it's interesting hearing Dara talk there about the collective mindset of Kerry and what they were going to do. Now, it's fair enough if Dublin supporters and if other people around the country were hyping Dublin up or not expecting this from Kerry, but you'd imagine the Dublin management, it was a management that went on to win in All-Ireland, yeah. you'd imagine that they were ready for it, that they must have known there would be this vast improvement in Kerry's game and that Kerry would target the Brogans and would target the kickouts and mm. would do these things, yet there was absolutely no response from Dublin or very little response. Well, I, I guess there's a couple of things there. Dara's right that, that the... the Two shots against the post came very soon, I remember, after... Like, one of them came in the first five minutes after mm-hmm. Colin Cooper. Colin Cooper scored a goal after 40 seconds. And I think Connolly hit the post within... Yeah, almost five minutes. In, yeah, five yeah, minutes. After five minutes so th- there was that, and the momentum shifted that way. But I think as well, the, the bigger thing is that it was Gilroy's first year. And he, by his own admission later on, hadn't really done everything that he'd needed or he had wanted to do with the team by that stage. Um, it is actually interesting. I had a check back at the team's uh, lineup this morning. Um, Paddy Andrews was marking Colin Cooper. You know, Paddy Andrews, who is uh, well, he, he'd more than likely be a sub, but he's been the, one of the, was Dublin's best forward through the league this yeah. year. You know, was Bridges' best forward uh, when they won a Leinster uh, club title, all of that sort of stuff. He was the cornerback marking Colin Cooper. Dennis Bastic was the fullback. Yeah. You know, it and. Um, they had Gilroy had a big clear out after o nine and he had the famous the famous phrase "We looked like startled earwigs out there and he didn't i don't think he had the personnel that he that he he wanted at that stage um he hadn't the the defensive plan that he wanted at that stage i mean Dublin changed dramatically the following year Dublin in the two thousand and ten league were more or less playing with twelve men back. You know, they were, it, it was sort of Donegal before Donegal came along. Um, I remember talking to Shane Ryan about it and he, w- he was saying that in early um, league games that year, all Dublin players ever heard from the sideline was get back, get back, get back. And that's what they were doing all the way through. So, so the plan that, that won Dublin, uh, the All-Ireland, hadn't started really evolving yet. Or if it's evolution stage, this was this was them kind of falling into the sea rather than getting that's out interesting, of it. That's interesting, yeah, know? because that's maybe another similarity then with this Sunday. Jim Gavin, again, this week leading up to the game, is speaking about his belief in how football should be played. Mm. He says that it should be attacking. It's a great sport yeah. that we have and all these kind of... That's all well and good and he has shown that so far, but... <laughs> if they get t- if they get tanked by Kerry this weekend, do they go suddenly twelve men behind the ball? Well, he s- he says absolutely not. Uh, no, he said it's not going to happen. Well, because I, I kind of asked him that. I said, well, I, I said, is the you know your philosophy is great and all that, but is it not just down to the players you have? And if you had different players, would you play a different system? And he kind of. Uh, very cuttingly said, "Well, I had the under twenty ones for six years, and we played the same way every year." So, <laughs> but uh, I take your point. Like it, it would be. We could be sort of talking on on Monday or Tuesday, going, yeah, it's all very well playing open football, but you know they've just lost Ker- by twelve points. Uh, and and Kerry, I'd say, aren't wouldn't be especially put out by a team that wants to play open football. You know, Dara, what was the aftermath of that match like for the Kerry team? <clears throat> Even a, a squad of footballers such as yourselves who had plenty of All Irelands in the bag. Do you need days like that to just remind yourselves how good you are to give you that confidence to go on and win All Ireland? Funny enough. Like, you laugh at this actually the funny the funniest thing about that was there wasn't that much euphoria afterwards because there was again what you mentioned there there was a fairly experienced bunch of players there 
And I remember the first thing people were saying, coming again, travelling home together, was there was a fear. There was a fear amongst the players then that you know that going into a semi final against me, I think at the time, it's the worst possible preparation for that kind of semi final because you've obliterated Dublin, who, who seemed to kind of ha- had done very well against most teams up to then. So realistically, then you you, you had to beat me come hell or high water. Then you had to keep everyone on the field. You couldn't lose anybody through suspension or anything like that before a final. And then on the far side, Cork were motoring well. So you could you like for Jack O'Connor and, and again you see that the players were very very kind of motivated. But your bunch of players as well at the time. So that was the I remember that was my abiding memory of coming home. We should play Mead now. How do we get our heads around this? Not think about Cork in the final and get our heads around beating Mead. We knew that we we the measure of Mead, you know, we we were fairly confident in that. But you see that's the problem. You can be overly overly confident as well. And it was just then to keep a cap then on, on what had happened because we knew look the reality of it is we got we got caused by, by Mead in zero one. And I always go back to that game because sometimes, when, even when you're really, very well prepared and very well tuned in, and we're actually, funny enough, in zero one, we had a habit of winning tight games. We won two semi finals. We we two draws in in um, in two thousand. One against Armagh and one against Dublin. Or sorry, one against Galway in the final, and we won the replays. And we also then coming through. We had tight games, so we were used to winning tight games at that stage at that team. And then we just got we got. Absolutely, you know, we got beaten by fifteen points. I think by me, fourteen or fifteen points that day. So, like, I was aware of the fact that that can happen to a team. You know, when somebody gets a run on you in Crow Park, particularly, they can put up a big score fairly quickly, and it's it's very hard to do anything about it. You know what I mean? It's it's, it's difficult enough to do anything about it when it's going like that. So, that was all kind of our mindset straight away was one of of, of cautiousness, one of basically kind of let's circle the wagons here again like this this could this could be the worst thing possible for us because you know you could you could I mean look what happened to me then afterwards in zero one against Galway, you know, they had beaten us they were nearly beaten by the same amount again by, by Galway, you know. So you really have to keep a cap in the particularly in the latter stages, you know. There's no room for error in semi finals or finals, you know. Is this Dublin team better, Malachy, than that team in oh nine more settled? Well I I guess we're gonna find out really. Uh I mean they they are younger um they they do look um like they're they do look like they're playing to a plan nothing has gone wrong for them yet um but i guess you could have possibly said the same about about that that 09 dublin team I, in retrospect like it's hard to see how we how we made them such favorites um when you look back at the team line up there uh, or when you just look back at the hiding that they took and when you look back at the changes that Gilroy had to make before they won in All-Ireland. I think it's I think it's the phrase that you used though, kind of the mood music around mm. it. And again, that's in ways, that's nearly what we're basing it on yeah. with Dublin as well. It's that what we have now is a new manager, uh, young players that look brilliant, that, you know, they're like, it's, it, they're so, it's such an attractive brand yeah. of football that they play that maybe we're building them up to be something that they're not. I do, I, yeah, I do feel the young players, you've kind of hit on it there, though. The guys who've come in have looked really comfortable. Paul Mannion, a bit quieter the last yeah. day, but has been, 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 been very good. Kieran Kilkenny's been superb. McCaffrey's been superb. So these guys have come in and already looked like they've, they've got the, the, the right stuff. Well, and also what I find interesting about this Dublin team is that um, when you look at the players that Gavin depends on, it's actually the younger players. <laughs> You know, the the players that, that are substituted are your Dermot Connollys, your Bernard Brogans, mm. uh, Brian Cullen was substituted, Jared Brennan. Mannion, McCaffrey, Kilkenny, 
nobody looks sideways at them. You know that that they are the players that that he is sort of basing his team on, and whether it works out this year or not, they're the players he's going to base his team on for the next ten years. Dar, interesting team selection and Kerry, no Donahue uh, or Owen Brosnan in the starting lineup there. So again, maybe a couple of younger players are getting the nod by Eamon Fitzmaurice. What's the feeling in Kerry about the team, about the chances? Well, it's a, it's a two-way street. Um, you know, you, you look at you look at the way they've gone with the team. I think they've gone back to the, the kind of forward line they played against Cork. You know, that that was very impressive. That was Kerry's most impressive football this year. You know, um, that's based again on a on a winning midfield. You know, so what I suppose what's happened there with 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 Brosnan coming in, or with Brosnan being out and Trump Fitzgerald in, it brings the age profile down quite a bit. So, like you're talking about from a Kerry point of view, you're talking about Tomas O'Shea, you're talking about Paul Galvin, and maybe maybe to a lesser extent Mark O'Shea. You know, at that age, that age group, but the rest of them then are reasonably. They're all under thirty, you know. So I mean, that's that's very doable then at that stage. Um, it's it's it, you need that. You need to kind of you need to mix it up against Dublin. You need to have Dublin guessing. You know, when you're coming in to play them, um, I think it's a good move from the Kerry point of view. And what it does as well is it strengthens your bench. I mean, you look at the Kerry bench now, and that's what probably came against Tyrone the last day. You know, when they really <clears throat> when they had to make moves when they were out on their feet when they had to make moves. You look at the, the moves that they didn't really have the personnel. Obviously, through injuries as well. I mean, Stephen O'Neill and Peter Hart going off with a big loss. But you look at the Kerry bench now. You've got you've got Aidan O'Mahony, you've got Brian Sheehan, you've got Kieran Dunny. You know, you've got you you've got a couple of you know. There, there's good solid players that you can go to there now. You know, so I mean, they're all match winners. I mean, if you can bring on, if you can afford to bring on Brian Sheehan, maybe with 15 or 20 minutes to go and kick a few kick a few frees and, and get into the game as well as that Kieran Donny he's always a good record against Dublin Aidan O'Mahony would relish a chance to get out there Owen Brosnan is another guy I mean you four excellent you know you four proven match winners there yeah there enough match winners to win the match just lastly there um, I think so I, I'm going to stick with I, 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 I think the bookies um, I was asking out there the bookies are giving bookies um, carrier two to one to win and <clears throat> if you book if you back carry minus four You'll get nine. You'll get nine to one. So I'm going to have a piece of that. <laughs> Mal- Malik, you want to make yourself? I will, uh, Dara. If you give me nine to one, I'll back it with you. Um, <laughs> you want to share the bit, Malik? Yeah. Uh, I I don't know. I I, I started the week thinking uh, I couldn't really see a way that Kerry would would do it. The more I look at it, the more I kind of look at the experience that they have and, and maybe they could pull around. I, I don't see it, to be honest. I, I, I just I think Dublin have too much, but I wouldn't be overly surprised, but I'm going to go with Dublin in the end. Michael Hurricane, Darrell Shea, brilliant stuff. Thank you. Andrew, that's the question. That's going to be asked. Answer tonight. Tonight. So now, come here tonight. Tonight. Into Wexford Park, and they just must produce the goods tonight. Tonight. Their team is better set up tonight. Tonight. But they just, the bottom line is, Michael, they have to do tonight. Tonight. Second Captains Football. Available on irishtimes.com, Second Captains, and iTunes from 6 p.m. tonight. 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 You know, what Dara outlines there about the what they had to plan for in 2009, the kickouts, cooks and kickouts, is something that will be the again. Yep. It'll be very similar. There'll be the, the, it's what every team playing against Dublin has to do. The Brogans, well, Alan Brogan's injured, so I suppose you can take that one out. And Bernard Brogan, certainly, it's not how it was then or how it was beginning to be then yeah. where he's the man you have to stop and if you stop him you stop the Dublin attack he's been stopped a couple of times this year in the Dublin attack yeah I think uh, I think in the intervening years 
Brogan was the main factor when planning for games against Dublin. It's changed this year, and I think that uh, you can substitute maybe Alan Brogan for Paul Mannion, and then you have a pretty accurate summation of where uh, the the big worries from a Kerry perspective are. Although, actually, I'd argue that Kieran Kilkenny is probably playing more. Yeah, the, maybe bro- so. the, the role that Brogan played, in, certainly in later years, the role that Brogan yeah. played. Uh, but I, I, I think just even talking about that, the sort of planning for planning for Dublin, that. If if Brogan sees Mark O'Shea jogging over to the opposite corner to pick up uh, Paul Mannion or picking up pick up Kieran Kilkenny <laughs> immediately, like yeah. and that's how kind of footballers work. That's the psychology of it. That you know, hold on a second here. I'm the danger man. You know what the hell is Mark O'Shea doing? Marking anyone ex- anyone else except me? And all of a sudden, you want one of the best man markers in the history of the game to be marking you for your own ego. You know, I mean, I I, I think that maybe footballers do think a little like that. Um, but I I think. In a similar vein, the build-up to 2009, you can make very similar, or uh, you can make a similar argument for okay, what's what are Kerry's weaknesses, and what would Dublin have been focusing on in 2009? They said, well, you know, do this team, do the best players on this team, do they still have the legs? And back in 2009, you were wondering that of well, Dara, but you're also wondering it of Tomas O'Shea, Mark O'Shea, Paul Galvin. Uh, Colm Cooper maybe to to a smaller to a much well, no, lesser Cooper degree. Well, Cooper is twenty eight at that stage. You know, he's well, he's thirty one now, so 27, 28, But he had eight years of football played at that stage. So, in in a way, the questions over Kerry in two thousand nine are still the questions we're asking of our, asking of them today. And you have to wonder whether are they ever going to be found out before they retire? These these amazing footballers that Kerry have, or do they actually have yeah, maybe that, now, with, that, yeah. uh, that experience? Are they actually going to be uh, pull another trick on Dublin. This Some weekend. players can play to a certain level and then they retire. It's not like they start going down the gears. Yeah. I'd just like to put on the record that I personally was not writing, writing Colm Cooper off <laughs> when he was 27 <laughs> years of age. Yeah. If, maybe if Murph, Murph might have had his, had his doubts about him four years ago. I combo. don't know. Okay, let's get into this. That's right, you're a real Irishman. You get the potato yeah. I left in your dressing room there? I got the potatoes yeah. and the puccine. Huh? And the puccine. Oh yeah, there you are. Bread, yeah, in uh, County Meath, a little place called Navin. It's P. Bezo time on, and uh, of course, P. Bezo standing for the Pierce Brosnan Emmergood shoutout. Some people are still a little confused about this. I get, you know, I get the odd email asking for a Pebzo. I mean, so. come on, people, can we focus here? It's not, it's only five words, and then just take the first letter of those five words. But anyway, Daniel Brendan Malarkey, great name has been in touch with more questions about his eligibility or otherwise for a P-Bezel. And this is a key th- uh, theme that I keep returning to every every week. Do I qualify? I, you know, we're in the embryonic stages of this. And I think it'll be codified in due course. You could just go out there and try and blag it as well. Yeah, exactly. You, know? you send an email in, you know, who cares? Yeah. Hi, lads. Travelling in South America and heard a request for listeners in the Galapagos to say hello on an old podcast. Well... My credit card company doesn't allow for that, but I was passing through what is known in Ecuador as the poor man's Galapagos, Isla de la Plata. Maybe worth a shout out? I don't know, Isla de la Plata, please. Is that Isle of Silver? Uh, I, I don't know and I don't care. It's the poor man's Galapagos, Ken. Uh, on, on to an ideological note, as a product of the Irish diaspora, folks from Mayo and Armagh, born and currently resident in the other conic sensation London, can I even qualify for a P-Bezo migrant shout out? Or do I inversely have to go and live in Navin? or elsewhere in Ireland <laughs> to qualify for an Andy Townsend ta- tactics truck holler <laughs> you got an A triple T H coming your way my man so well done a very special word now for St. Vincent's GA Club in Toronto 
who celebrated their win in the Toronto County Fo- County Football Final by holding up a P. Bezos sign with the trophy at the end of wow. the game. I, t- I, I we tweeted this uh, earlier in the week, and it is exceptional. So fair play to you yep. all. Star player Tomas Crow has been in touch, and they've not been allowed to take part in the North American Football Championships this year for some reason, and he's extremely upset about this. But Pierce and I have discussed uh, this at length, and given their sterling support for this slot, we've decided to take affirmative action. So after their shameful blanking, Pierce Brosnan and I can now jointly name St. Vincent's GA Club in Toronto the Continuity North American Football Champions by default. So go down to Filthy McNasties or whatever the hell the name of the Irish bar in Toronto is and celebrate your continuity victory there, Tomas. Can I just ask, Tomas Crow, did he sign himself as the star player? No, actually, and I should probably have said that because I'm 90% certain that I used to play football against this guy when he he's from Gola, from Ballygarren County Gola. I'm nearly certain that he was a pretty good footballer. So, you know, you do have to mind your mind your, uh, mind your uh, P's and Q's down in Ballygar. Sure. Because as my father once said to me, Ken, they'd ate their young down there. And he did actually say that. I remember my father saying that to me once. I was like, they what? <laughs> well, I, I'm not they, say, they quite literally eat their young. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I didn't get it at all. I, you know, I'd never heard it. It just seemed like such a weird thing for him to have said. Well, what age were you when you first heard this? Uh, quite, probably eight or nine. So, Ken, you're going from a very low base of, of scary things. Back then, you know, gremlins would have been scaring at the time. Oh, so yeah. to go from that to... The, in real Fathers life, yeah, their young. cannibalism. Yeah, okay. cannibalism is a huge leap. That's a jump. That's a, that's a jump and a half. David Heffernan is uh, next up. And uh, we did actually, as I was saying earlier, get an avalanche of P. Bezel pictures this week. So we thank you all. He uh, sent us in a, a, a photograph from the Sky Dome, uh, home of the Toronto Blue Jays. Uh, I'm the one with the P. Bezel sign in the West Ham football top, not the guy with the crazy eyes to the right of this picture. And he is, in fairness, he does, in fairness, look extremely, extremely crazy. So he went to a Toronto Blue Jays game against the New York Yankees and uh, he reports uh, every time A-Rod took the field he was met with a chorus of boos from the 30,000 fans gathered in hope rather than expectation that the Jays might beat the Yankees two nights in a row and so it was with tedious inevitability that A-Rod silenced the crowd with a home run (laughs) at his third at bat it seems you can't keep a good or morally suspect man down (laughs) Uh, so and there was something else here yes Brian O'Rourke looking for a peep for a gang of us here in Singapore good man Brian uh, Connor Murphy says hello from Haiti and Andrew Grady our American born and raised GA fan from last week got in touch lads heard the shout out today holy mackerel that was cool <laughs> uh, thanks Andrew and thank you Andrew thank you for getting in touch and uh, if you have any P bezels or any other queries or questions about the work that we do here at the Irish Times please email them in to secondcaptains at irishtimes.com on time now for US Murph Yes, we have to say it. Remember, this is just a football game, no matter who wins or loses. I am deeply sorry for my irresponsible and selfish behavior. You're being extremely truculent. Whatever truculent means, if that's good, I'm there. Strike three called, and the Giants have won the World Series in Detroit. Brian, it's good to talk to you this week. You're back in the office after your nice, your nice vacation last week. Yeah, but you know what did Shakespeare say? Uh, if all the year we're playing holidays to vacation would be as tedious as to work. Did he say that? I don't know. I think yeah. I read that somewhere once. Something uh, very similar to that. My, my old man was <laughs> retiring from his job after 40 years and, com- and said that exact quotation, Brian. That's strange. It must be a Murphy thing. 
It's a Murphy thing, Karen. Uh, the Murphs know what we're talking about. I don't know. I pulled that one out of the nether regions of my uh, brain, and it makes very little sense. But the point is, I wish I was still on vacation, except for talking to you guys. It, it is good to be back as we inch ever closer to the NFL. We got. I know you guys aren't into college football as much as we are here in the States, but that starts this weekend. That's huge for us college football fans. And, of course, the baseball pennant races. But when my team is well out of it, uh, I only look with a distant eye. Brian, tell us about this ESPN story, which we want to talk to you about. They're getting quite a lot of criticism for pulling out of an involvement in a television documentary. Can you tell us, fill us in the detail a little? Yeah, yeah. This is uh, this was a black eye for ESPN guys, who's having a rough. They're having a rough year. ESPN, the former titan. It almost leads you to the the theory that dynasties don't last forever. You know, uh, ESPN when it was invented in the early 80s, was kind of started from nothing. It took about 10 years to kind of get hold of America. And then it's had about a 20-year run on our consciousness from about the early 90s to about now the early 10s. Now, mind, they're still, you know, massively important and have all the important broadcast rights to everything, and, you know, including Monday Night Football in the NFL and, and including, of course, uh, a lot of Major League Baseball in the summertime and, of course, a ton of college football and NBA playoffs. I mean, they still are the place to go for your sports. But lately they've been taking hits, and whether it was considered um, kind of their journalistic sensibilities have been called into question. They've been accused of being much more sensationalized. Um, It kind of started with Brett Favre when he would waffle in and out of the Packers. They were accused of uh, over-sensationalizing that. It really kicked in with Tim Tebow's sort of uh, whole phenomena uh, in his in his last couple of years when he went to the Jets, et cetera. They were accused of really just playing up to one story at the expense of um, really their credibility. Lately, they've been accused of sort of being, you know, corporate shills for like movie promotions and TV promotions and things like that, cross promotions. But this one, I think, is the uh, is the haymaker of them all, and that is that. They were in co-production with the very prestigious journalistic entity called PBS Frontline. Uh, this is public broadcasting, guys. This is our most serious uh, you know, news show. Uh, American PBS uh, has a show called Frontline, and, uh, and they, and they have, were doing a documentary on NFL concussions. And this is supposed to be maybe the kind of opus that really addresses the significance of concussions and what is really happening in the NFL, how bad is it, what does the NFL know, when did they know it, et cetera, et cetera. And what happened, guys, in the last two weeks, ESPN pulled out of the documentary with PBS. And, wow, that looks bad because it looks like they were in the, the hold of the NFL, who doesn't want this documentary made. The NFL is very upset about this negative publicity. And for ESPN to withdraw from the documentary and take their name off of it has all the appearances of them being strong-armed by the NFL and basically you know, kind of answering to the corporate pressure of the NFL and calls into question, really, what ESPN's all about? Are they going to give you the truth? Are they going to tell you the story? Are they going to try to sweep things under the rug when Roger Goodell and the NFL don't like what they're saying? So right now, they're really swimming upstream when it comes to the credibility factor. This is a bad, bad time for ESPN, guys. It seems to be. The New York Times reported this story first, Brian, and they say that they, they had specifics on it. Because the assumption, as you say, would be that there might have been some pressure there. This New York Times article alleged there very much was pressure. There was a lunch meeting between Roger Goodell, the commissioner of the NFL, 
and John Skipper, who's ESPN's president, a couple of other important people in those organizations were there at the time also, and that quite soon after this lunch was had, suddenly ESPN had pulled out. And as far as I know, the only they've denied this that, that there was pressure, but the only reason that they've come up with is that they did felt they didn't have editorial control over the project. But it seems as though that was always going to be the case. They were never the this PBS frontline program was never going to give over all their editorial control to ESPN. No, I don't. I think there's any question. This is a case where you you hear what ESPN says, and then you look at their actions. And it's like anything in life, actions mean more than words, right? So when ESPN tells you, "Well, we're we're pulling out because of this," and then you look at the actual action of them pulling out of the project, you think, "Whoa!" So yeah, you're right. This lunch, that now kind of this kind of infamous lunch for ESPN that they had with Roger Goodell at a New York uh, restaurant, and that shortly thereafter they pulled out, has all the appearances of the NFL really trying to. To, to reverse the narrative, which is, is growing each year, guys, it just becomes more and more of a problem. I think we've alluded to this in the past on the show that there is like, you know, there are some doomsayers that say that this head injury problem is going to be such a, is, is, it could eventually derail the NFL off its role as its perch as America's number one sport. And I mean, when people think, think that that's crazy or could never happen, well, they say, well, guess what? In the 1920s, boxing and horse racing were the two most popular sports in America. And in the 1950s and 60s and 70s, baseball was the most popular sport in America. And these things change. These things evolve. These things move on. And, and if the NFL has a vulnerability, it's on this. Now, we may or may not have talked about this class action lawsuit that NFL players are suing the league, alleging knowledge of head injuries. And the biggest thing, too, guys, that this, this PBS Frontline documentary is going to get into is the possible, uh, uh, possibility of a cover-up. You know, it's always, it's, as they always say, it's never the crime, it's the cover-up, whether it's uh, Richard Nixon in Watergate or, or Oliver North and Ronald Reagan in Iran-Contra. It's never the crime, it's the cover-up. And, you know, what did the NFL know? Over 4,000 NFL former players, 4,000 have attached their names to this class action lawsuit alleging that the NFL knew that these players had cognitive disabilities, that the doctors and the team doctors knew, and they continued to do nothing about head safety or rule changes or anything like that because they didn't want to damage the product. And that's what this documentary theoretically is supposed to investigate. And this is, of course, what the NFL wants to run screaming from. They don't want anything to, to cut into their pie, to damage their reputation, but it's happening, and it's happening right now. And actually, guys, I can see this in your near future. The, uh, the Fainaroo brothers, who I know you had on back when the, the Barry Bond steroid scandal broke, and they wrote the book Game of Shadows, Mark Fainaroo Wada, I know has been on your show. Mm. He and his brother, Steve Fainaroo, who actually grew up right near me here in uh, Northern California, and they're very, very strong journalists. Steve Fienaru uh, won a Pulitzer Prize uh, for the Washington Post for his coverage in Iraq. They are the two guys behind this documentary. They have a book coming out in October called League of Denial, and it's going to be about the history of head injuries in the NFL and what has the league known and not known and what have they covered up and what have they tried to brush under the rug. And that's what this whole documentary is about, so you can just see it all as clear as day that the NFL wants nothing to do with this, and they're telling the ESPN, essentially, the assumption is, hey, listen, you know, we're your golden goose. What are you, what are you doing to us right here? So ESPN can say what they want, Oh, and care on about, uh, you know, well, we didn't like the direction of this or that, or we didn't like editorial control, but the actions speak far louder than the words. It's interesting, Brian, that if ESPN have caved on this particular issue, as you say, the Fenora Waters are doing a lot of work on this, and they were working behind the scenes on the television documentary as well as the book that you talk about there. As far as I know, there are a hell of a lot of 
what you would call quality news, sports-related news journalists at ESPN. There's a newsroom element there that they're very proud of. But is this your classic situation that you get in broadcasting? And maybe the bigger the broadcaster gets, such as ESPN, the bigger the problem is that there's a dichotomy there between reporting on the, the serious stuff, which ESPN does to an extent, but corporate considerations, which seem to be winning out in this particular battle. Totally. And, you, and you're getting on to something that's kind of a, I mean, a much larger issue in sort of America in the 21st century. I see it at my own workplace. And it, it seems like, I mean, boy, let's talk about another topic for another day where you could do two hours on the, you know, the history of American business and, and or labor relations and things like that that have gone on. Has America become and I don't know, maybe worldwide this is the case too in Europe, I don't know, but there's, there's a definitely a sense that certainly something as simple as labor unions in the 20th century were, you know, a huge movement and a huge change in how businesses were run. Well, there's been sort of an anti-labor union movement in the last 20, 30 years, and, and labors have been demonized, our unions have been demonized, and corporations are growing ever stronger, and you can get into things like Walmart and how they treat their workers and what they pay their workers, and you can get into things like uh, you know the conglomeration and um, assimilation of companies and the mass layoffs that have gone on, and the power that that has really come about in corporate America. I mean, they t- you know how the whole housing bubble burst. I mean, we can get into some very very serious stuff about the banks. You know, the Wall Street banks. I mean, I just finished this book called The Unwinding, and it's not sports-related at all, but it's about the last 30 years of American history, and it's about the, the, the very serious issues about the, the sort of the fabric of our society coming apart because of the power of corporations. So again, I'm getting into very deep stuff here that's kind of far away from football, but I, I see the same theme at work in that the NFL and ESPN being sort of not, quote-unquote, too big to fail, like the Wall Street banks, but certainly too big to allow dissension or too big to allow, you know, maybe uh, 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 anti-authoritarian voices. You know, yeah, I mean, it gets kind of scary how sometimes they try to squelch those voices. At the same time, they do employ the Fainaroos who are great journalists, who, who, you know, they're drawing their paycheck from ESPN, and they are doing strong work. So, so it's not to con- totally condemn all of ESPN. They are, they are trying to do some journalism. I think you used the phrase, though, Owen, though, to an extent. There's a line, though, that they will draw. Now, they'll do a lot of quality work, and the Fainaroos are going to do quality work, but it looks like ESPN answering to the NFL is saying, yeah, to a, to a point, and that's, that's kind of a scary thing. And there's a big trust issue now as well between uh, viewers and readers of the ESPN output and and ESPN because you have to ask, is this exactly what ESPN want or is it what ESPN and their corporate partners want you to be reading or seeing? Yeah, totally. And like I said, you know, guys, in, in addition to everything else, Kieran, is uh, f- there's a new network that just launched called Fox Sports 1. Now, I haven't really gotten into it yet. It just launched last week. It's supposed to be a competitor to ESPN. I haven't heard a whole lot of positive buzz about it yet, but it's it's opening up the doors that that with enough questions about ESPN and their coverage that maybe people will start to go elsewhere. It kind of returns to the theme we laid out about dynasties not lasting forever. And, you know, maybe if enough of these things happen, if ESPN overemphasizes Tim Tebow and Brett Favre and to a certain degree now the Jets quarterback situation, which is just so boring and just kind of being a one-note franchise, and then also – 
costing themselves journalistic credibility with things like this PBS Frontline documentary, if enough of these things start happening, maybe people start going away from ESPN. Maybe eyeballs go elsewhere. Maybe a new competitor rises up. Maybe Fox Sports 1, like I said, you know, gains credibility in some way. So, yeah, I mean, it's a, there's no guarantee that says we have to follow ESPN's lead forever. I mean, we deal with that in, in our business in radio. You know, we have competitive radio stations that crop up and try to get a piece of your pie. And so it's a never-ending war in the marketplace. And ESPN has had a long, strong run. But if they continue to take hits and continue to kind of turn off people and kids get their stuff from their mobile phones now or elsewhere, maybe they won't uh, continue to rake in huge amounts of cash. Now, they're good for the near future. I mean, they're still raking in massive amounts of cable fees that we all pay to get our product. But, you know, we'll see. I mean, these are the things that are chipping away at the facade. Brian, it should be made clear, I think uh, hopefully it is clear to people, that th- this documentary is still going ahead. That The uh, PBS Frontline documentary is will be on television screens, the trailer's already out, and also that book is going to still come out from the Fenura Waters. So we're going to see a lot about this concussion issue. In a way, has the news, the, the fact the news leaked out that it seems as though the NFL put pressure on ESPN not to be a part of it, do you think that, that, that ultimately that's actually going to backfire now on the NFL? It'll seem as though it'll convince people even more that they've got something to hide here. I totally agree with you that on that, Owen. I mean, I, I, truth told, I mean, I'm in this business, and I only had kind of a vague awareness that this is coming out, but now my interest is totally heightened. <laughs> yeah, me too. No I'm going to say, yeah. For all, all of us, you and you two and me, they just got three more viewers that, that <laughs> we probably would have seen it at some point, but now it's going to be appointment viewing, you know, and, and you can just multiply the numbers of people that are listening to us right now and people that are reading this stuff online all around the country that are going to tune in. Yeah, so, and like I said at the start, PBS Frontlines are always very, very good documentaries. That's some of our finest journalism. You know, 60 Minutes is famous here for their hard-hitting stuff. They, they haven't always kept that reputation through the years, but PBS Frontline does mess around. They do very somber, serious documentaries. And I'm in October 8th. I don't even know the day. I know it's October 8th, so I'm sure we'll be talking about it that week. Last word, Brian, is on the college football. You did bring it up. You, you always tell us how excited we should be, and I know some of our listeners certainly... Are. So can you tell us who, is there, is there a Tim Tebow this year or an Orgy 3? Johnny Football, just more Johnny Football. More Johnny Football. Guys, we did a whole show on Johnny Football, which yeah. I was so proud of you guys. So proud of you guys <laughs> for bringing college football. Of course, you wanted scandal. That's all you wanted, oh, yeah. was scandal. Yeah. <laughs> Forget but about no, the here's a name. here's a name for you guys. If you just want to get into incredible football and freakishness, there is a defensive lineman at the University of South Carolina named, wait for it, Jadavion Clowney. Jadavion Clowney. Now, hardcore football heads in Ireland already know the name, but the casual fan may not. They're saying this guy has a chance to be the greatest football player who ever lived. He is a six foot six, two. I, I can't give you his weight right now. Two fifty, two sixty, sleek jaguar of a beast who it plays defensive line for the South Carolina Gamecocks and absolutely wreaks havoc. He's kind of like the new breed of athlete in, in speed, size, and strength. He was the number one recruit coming out of high school, and just last year he exploded all over the field. Guys, I always turn you on to a YouTube thing, and I'm sure some of the listeners have already seen it, but those who haven't, last year in the bowl game of South Carolina versus Michigan, Jadavion Clowney laid a hit on a Michigan running back that is now considered maybe the greatest hit in the history of college football, exploded the helmet off of the, of the ball carrier, 
and just sealed his legend. He is going into this year as possibly, he could be one of the first guys ever to win the Heisman Trophy, which is the trophy given out to the best player in college football, almost always given to a quarterback or a running back. He could be the first defensive lineman to win it, and uh, it's because he's just such a phenomenal player. So Jadavion Clowney and the South Carolina Gamecocks, Gamecocks will be worth, of, worth a watch, guys, okay? Sounds great, Brian. We'll keep an eye. Thanks so much. All right, guys. All the best. Brilliant stuff as ever from Brian, who we speak to each and every Thursday here on Second Captains at the Irish Times. I think we're all looking forward to this documentary now, it must be said. Looking yeah. forward to the book coming out by the Fenura Waters as well. Mark Fenura Waters, as Brian said there, was the man who wrote the book about Balco, which sort of exploded the whole Barry Bonds. There were a number of athletes involved. Marion in Jones, one. too. Marion Jones, Barry Bonds, a pretty big name American athletes were implicated in that one. He wrote an incredible book on that and... And there was quite a good backstory to that as well. So we will uh, look forward to that book coming out and the documentary. Just on the, I know, Ken, you were saying earlier that you're more interested in what the NFL are up to here. Because at least you can, you can understand, well, you can see the logic of ESPN bowing to pressure. But Mm. the point about ESPN is that they actually do make a lot of, they have been aggressively pursuing this story up to now, they, as we were talking about there, they employ the Fenura Waters, two investigative journalists who are writing a book on the thing. I'm, I'm looking over at the closest that we have in this part of the world, Ken, to ESPN. You would say it's Sky Sports. Yeah. I don't see anyone within Sky Sports writing or being uh, doing investigative journalism people don't on that kind ex- of a scale. Yeah, people don't even expect it of Sky. No, uh, I don't think so. Uh, Which is why I find this interesting. It's not as though ESPN are just completely lapdogs for the NFL. They certainly haven't been up to this point. Yeah. ESPN actually has, a, has a, an ombudsman. A set, they appoint what they call their ombudsman. It's Robert Lapiste, who's a big-name American journalist. Uh, he actually had a, he was writing about this saying, at best, so this is on ESPN, this guy is essentially in charge of being an independent regulator for them. Well, regulator is stretching it, but yeah. being an independent voice that people will respect who can talk about this kind of subject. And he wrote maybe one of the most interesting pieces on it, but he said, at best, we've seen some clumsy shuffling to cover a lack of due diligence. At worst, a promising relationship between two journalism powerhouses that could have done more good together has been sacrificed to mollify a league under siege. The best isn't very good, but if the worst turns out to be true, it's a chilling reminder of how often the profit motive wins the duel. Yeah, and I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't mean by what I said earlier on to, to sort of let ESPN off the hook. It's just that, you know, that's, that's usually the way it works. You know, if, if I think media organisations are often <laughs> sensitive to direct financial threats, that's unfortunately the way that it is. I do think the NFL are not going to be able to sort of put the genie back in the bottle, though. That's what they're trying to do, and that that's hopeless. Um, yeah, and, and it should actually be stressing all this that the most interesting part, I know we're looking at this from the angle of how it's being covered, the most interesting part is that this has happened, that all these, that there's scientific evidence over the last number of years that's emerged, that, has. that, that there's been, that, that a lot of these NFL players, many, many thousands, it looks like, have suffered degenerative brain conditions because of playing the game. Yeah. Uh, this is now going through the courts and we'll see what they have to say about it, but uh, it's absolutely un- an unbelievable story and the allegation is that the NFL knew a lot about this, a lot more than they let on they knew about it, which is where it gets really serious if it wasn't serious enough already. The NFL, it, this is a threat to the NFL. It's a threat to the game because, you know, if you're a, a Yeah, parent, Brian was quite clear on that. You yeah. know, just how big, you know, it, it, too big to fail is not, is, it, it, anytime you hear that phrase now, the way the, as Brian was saying, drawing uh, comparisons with Wall Street, anytime you hear that phrase, yeah. immediately alarm bells should, should start going off. This thing is definitely going to fail. Yeah, because, and it's going to cause a lot And they're being very cocky about it and closing their eyes to the but, You know, if you're, if you're a parent of, of, of a kid, you know, 
like I mean, there's there's always going to be people who who want to play in the NFL because you make so much money. It's such a big time thing to do. But I, I'm I, I suspect that they're going to reach the point where everybody who does so will have to sign all kinds of releases specifying that in the event of brain damage, they can't sue because you know it's it's kind of a, I know the risks clause. But yeah, you know, I, I think that that is probably going to have a negative effect, certainly on the kind of participation rates. I mean, you know, I don't know. I think people will always want to go there. The money, the glory is going to draw people to it. It's not just that. There's a debate going on in America about that now, uh, whether it's safe for kids to play the sport. And a lot of people are weighing in saying, of course it's safe. Safe for kids? Yeah. They uh, don't hit each other with, you know, uh, they don't weigh 300 pounds. A safe sport for kids to get into and (laughs) ultimately move up the ranks. But the point being that there are a lot of people in the US who think that this is sensationalism that it's it's ridiculous that people nanny are going over the top nanny states life is dangerous yeah you know you get knocked over by a bus walking to work yeah you could you know yeah. and or you could put yourself in the way of a human bus weighing 350 pounds 16 times a season at least yeah i mean there are the choices of life really, i suppose yeah. you know if you, if you think of them as, as gladiators or whatever but then you know why don't we just bring actual gladiatorial games back coming up i'm sure they'd get big really really big, big ratings coming up at six o'clock tonight that's yeah they have asked for that really well you can laugh walk up. i'm a little bit of an idealist but having said that i want to be like me but you don't know what you're talking about what did you want i managed to stay alive for six oh, days i'm going to leave it there i'd say it to your face not say it to you now i will down to one field and we'll see them what you're doing down here you surely man Second captain's football, Kent. Yeah, so a lot to talk about. Obviously, Chelsea playing tomorrow against Bayern in the Super Cup meetings, uh, means that Jose Mourinho is going to be pitted against Pep Guardiola almost immediately. Um, uh, so we'll talk a little bit about that. We're going to talk also about... Um, well, Barcelona were playing last night in the middle of the night. I don't know if you, if you caught this. Um, <laughs> the match finished at you know, 1 o'clock local time. Uh, apparently, there's some ruling that you can't play a match... Uh, at the same time that any Champions League matches are going on. So because it was playoff matches and so on, they ended up kicking off at 11 o'clock. <laughs> and it was not a great match, but it was a very interesting one. And we're going to talk a little bit about the reasons for that. Owen. The Sports Gene by David Epstein is a new book out. Inside the Science of Extraordinary Athletic Performance is the subtitle of it. Ken, essentially, as you were explaining earlier on, it deals with to keep it short before we speak to David here, how our genetic makeup influences our capacity to succeed in sport. Mm. Uh, that there are certain uh, genes or combination of ge- combinations of genes which, you know, directly influence your potential to reach the top in any given sphere of athletic ability. And, you know, if you've got, uh, you know, a happy combination of those genes or quite a few of the important ones, uh, then your chances of getting there are going to be a lot better than the next person's, even if you do, you know, the same mental work, or even if the next person does a lot more work than you. David, this kind of thing, I would imagine, leads you into the territory. Thanks very much, firstly, for talking to us on the show, but it leads you into the territory of ethnic differences and how that relates to sporting ability or how sporting ability relates maybe to ethnic differences is the best way of phrasing that. That can be controversial. That can be uh, difficult enough, I guess, water to navigate sometimes. Was it something that worried you when you started working on the book? Uh, and more than that, it, it worried me so much I almost decided to back out of finishing the project um, because I would talk to some scientists who would tell me that they were actually withholding data if they had found differences um, between ethnic groups in some of their studies. It, these would always be studies related to health and exercise often, but they were concerned that they could be construed as 
somehow supporting innate intellectual differences, even though that had nothing to do with their work. And so that started to scare me. But then I, after I got a little worried, I then got upset that people were hiding data and felt that I didn't want to do the same thing. Yeah, I'm interested, actually, David, that you say it was, you know, you'd already been working on it and, and you'd done a lot of work on it when, when that sort of fear began to, to strike you. I, I kind of assumed that maybe that would have happened at the, at the beginning of the process. So what was it that, that began to worry you as work went on? Well, in the beginning of the process, I, it was sort of the things that I was learning. So in the beginning of the process, I learned about genetic diversity early on, where um, most of the world's genetic diversity is contained in Africa, because that's where humanity has spent most of its time. So I felt like, well, that's actually a message that's quite palatable for people, that um, you know, there's such great diversity in Africa that in some senses, just to say black and white is really a coarse message. But then the more and more I learned, I realized that while... Uh, you know, there are so many genetic similarities between all ethnicities. There are certain important differences, and that was just later in the learning curve for me. And that's when I started to get worried when I realized if I was going to write truthfully um, about what geneticists were telling me, I was going to have to highlight some of those. What that's, uh, Were there fraught conversations with some of these people who were withholding the information? Did you sort of put it up to them that this is the kind of thing that people need to know about? Yeah, eventually I did. Once I gained confidence with my own interpretation of things and started presenting some of my writing to someone like Kenneth Kidd, who is a world expert in the study of genetics and ethnicity and human ancestry, and he telling me, you know, kind of affirming that I was handling it appropriately, then I did. I remember I was at a conference, the American College of Sports Medicine Conference, and a, the head of a kinesiology department at a major research university, a guy who has tenure, can't be fired, tells me that he's withholding data um, about the response to a dietary supplement of exercisers because he found ethnic differences. And that's something that could be useful for health. And so when it sort of leaked over into medicine, then uh, I started sort of pushing back to some of the people I was talking with. You traveled to Jamaica. It's quite clear the dominance that they have enjoyed over the last few years. It was rammed home with the World Athletics Championships just a few weeks ago in, in sprinting. What did you find about the, I don't know if there is a, a uniform Jamaican physique, it's maybe a little bit simplistic on my part, but what did you find about Jamaican people that makes them so suited to sprinting? Well, two things. One, I think, uh, and this isn't specific to Jamaicans, but every man who's been in an Olympic 100-meter final um, since the boycott at Olympics of 1980, whether his homeland is Jamaica, the United States, Canada, Portugal, Netherlands, every single one of them uh, has his ancestry in a small area of West Africa. Uh, and in that area of West Africa, people tend to have, just on average, only on average, a higher proportion of fast-twitch muscle fibers, which are good for sprinting, and they have long legs uh, proportional to their body, which is an evolutionary adaptation for cooling when you come from low-latitude ancestry. Same reason your radiator has long coils, to increase the surface area to the volume to let heat out. So you have a population of people with certain traits that on average are conducive, uh, to sprinting, and then you have this amazing selection system where um, Jamaican sprinting is like American football or Brazilian soccer or Canadian hockey, and where basically every kid uh, is is made to try it and the cream rise to the top. I mean, they have their whole own system of sort of where high school coaches bribe uh, parents with refrigerators to try to get the young kids to come to the, their school to be sprinters. Yeah, I, there was bits when I was reading this book. It, it certain elements of it reminded me of uh, of the book a few years ago, "Guns, Germs, and Steel" by Jared Diamond, where um, he was kind of looking to uh, geographical um, and environmental sort of explanations um, for differences in, in outcomes in various societies around the world. And 
there is at least one such explanation uh, that you speak about in the book why and um, this sort of the fast twitch uh, muscles, the preponderance or a greater proportion of fast twitch muscles in West African populations. Why uh, that? How that actually came to be? Yeah, that's, I'm, I'm honored to have the sports gene mentioned in the same breath as Jared Diamond. But um, it, it is so that area of West Africa where those sprinters come from, no matter where they actually grow up, where their ancestry is, happens to have the highest malaria rates um, in the world. And we now know there are genetic adaptations that people. Um, whose ancestries in that area have that changes their physiology. One thing it does is it leaves them with fewer red blood cells, so they are distinctly disadvantaged for endurance sports. And in the book, I discuss evidence that to make up for that, there was a shift to this greater proportion of fast-twitch muscle fibers that can produce energy without relying on oxygen, since people from that area tend to have a reduced ability to create energy with oxygen. Yeah, the I mean, there, there are obviously stories within Jamaica as to how uh, it's not, it's clearly not just Jamaica who who are good at sprinting, but they are the outstanding sort of country at the moment. What's the story that they tend to tell themselves, or the popular narrative in terms of um, how they got so good? Well, when I visited and I asked them, I, I started to hear this story over and over of the Maroons. The Maroons are a group of slaves um, who uh, sort of escaped and beat back the British army. Uh, you know, a hundred years before, uh, they won their freedom a hundred years before slaves were officially freed uh, in Jamaica. And they went and cloistered themselves up in this sort of remote and um, foreboding uh, area of northwest Jamaica in the rainforest. And those warriors happened to live in an area where all the great sprint, you know, Usain Bolt and Veronica Campbell Brown come right from that area. And so they say, you know, we were the strongest. We escaped. We fought the British Army. All the sprinters come from our area. Of course, it was, it's our breeding. They came from our stock. So that was the story that I was told when I was there. David, I don't know how much the Jamaicans are willing to talk about the subject of doping, but it seems clear that uh, even since you spoke, uh, since you started researching the book, Sharon Simpson features in it, for example, in yeah. the book, and she has tested had a positive test of Safa Powell and others also. And it, it, more information has leaked out about the lack of testing over the course of the year leading up to the Olympic Games. It certainly seems at, at best there was a lack of organisation in the anti-doping procedures there. What Was there much on that that you could glean from conversations in Jamaica? Well, I'll tell you from having been to Jamaica, so that, that article that I think sort of uh, just put this at a fever pitch from the woman who worked for Jamaican anti-doping, I recruited that article because right. of sources I made when I was in Jamaica. Yeah. Um, so I think uh, it, you know... I love watching Jamaican sprinting, but I think with great visibility and great success also comes uh, great responsibility to um, ensure that those are legitimate performances. Uh, so I don't think that the overall Jamaican trend in sprinting is, is being driven by drugs, but I think there's sort of a carelessness about it, and, and the dietary supplement laws in Jamaica are extremely lax, which I think put athletes at risk. And I hope that they can avoid um, kind of what happened in the United States, which is in retrospect realizing we weren't doing anything and having all kinds of problems. Uh, another country that you traveled to in the course of combining the book is Kenya. And when you look at uh, the Kenyan dominance in uh, middle and long distance running, it's even more stunning, really, than uh, the, you know, the recent Jamaican success in sprinting. What is it peculiarly about the kind of uh, body type that you know, people or the people on average tend to have in Kenya more often than elsewhere. And what is it about Kenya itself that has that has sort of created this body type or led to, to people developing in this way? 
Yeah, so when I, of course, outside of Kenya, we think of Kenyans as being great marathoners. And then you go to Kenya, and Kenyans think of the Kalenjin tribe as being great marathoners, uh, which are just 10 to 12% of the population, but the vast, vast majority of the great runners come from that tribe. And they happen to have uh, be the epitome of what's called the nilotic body type, um, which is linear. Anthropologists call it linear. It means they have extremely thin um, pelvic breadth, extremely long and thin limbs, and again, it's an adaptation for cooling because they have their ancestry at extremely low latitude. I was crisscrossing the equator when I was uh, visiting them, and um, in a very hot and dry climate, and the leg is like a pendulum, so when it's longer and there's less weight at the extremity, it's easier to swing. It's much more energy efficient to swing. So you want all, if you look down and you have thick ankles, like, I'm sorry, you're just not going to win the New York City Marathon. That's, that's just a fact. Yeah, um, I mean, it seems that the further north you go, the, well, the less suitable you are for, for long-distance running. Ireland, I think, is one of the most northerly inhabited parts of the world. So um, Sonia O'Sullivan is a true well, But yeah, this is the point. We have had successful long-distance runners. John Tracy came second in the Olympic Marathon in L.A. in 1984, but we don't compete at that sort of level now with the, I guess, with the dominance of African runners in more recent years. Is it possible, David, for uh, an Irishman to go and win an Olympic marathon anytime in the, in the near future? I think it's possible. You know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say it's, it's likely for a number of reasons. Well, here, actually, I, I, think it's, I think it's probably not possible because um, the culture has now dropped the search for that person in most countries. So, again, it's important to remember that all this stuff is just averages. If you shift the average in a population, it does change the people at the extremes quite a bit. But I think a number of factors have led to sort of Europe and the United States basically ceasing to even try to identify uh, who their athletes who could win the Olympic marathon are. Yeah, I mean, you make the point that Finland, uh, Finland and Great Britain, also two very northerly countries, used to um, kind of be very dominant in these um, yeah. in these sports, and, and things have changed now. Yeah, Finland was the dominant distance-running uh, superpower in the world between World War One and World War Two, and, you know, the genes didn't change in Finland. The, the culture did in that time. That said, I think if, if, uh, if Finland turned into um, Kenya economically tomorrow and people were running uh, for opportunities, I don't think they would dominate now that the whole world competes. But I do think if Kenya turned into Finland economically tomorrow that the running phenomenon would be done. And there's a ton of stuff in this book that we, we clearly don't have time to talk about. I mean, you, you even look at sled dogs in Alaska. Yeah. To and, and the interesting thing about that chapter is finding that you can sort of breed dogs for work ethic or for keenness to actually just keep pulling the, pulling the sled. This, which seems like a kind of a behavioral trait, is also something which is, uh, at least in part, genetically determined. Now this, I suppose uh, one of the big things that's come out of the, the publication of this book is that it seems to go against the uh, the recent books uh, about the 10,000 hour rule. Um, you know, it's it's crude maybe to talk about Malcolm Gladwell's outliers in, in this way, but you know, the, the idea that it's a question of how much work you put in as, a, as opposed to the idea of, of your innate uh, abilities. And I think Malcolm Gladwell has even responded from this, um, re- responded rather to your book, uh, he said, you know, essentially that he he still reckons that he was right, that that is, that is the most important thing. For anything that requires a lot of skill, for anything that that is a high-level sort of performance, as opposed to something simple like running, uh, jumping, or so on, How, what do you think of that criticism? So, 
first of all, in in the, in the writing that he did, it seemed to me that he was, um, I mean, he called the 10,000 hours both a rule, which has been completely disavowed by the man who actually did the work toward it, um, and he called it a magic number. And to me, the piece that he wrote was very much backing away from saying that it's a rule or a magic number. It was almost as if to say, well, I didn't really mean it was a rule or a magic number. I just meant that more practice was important in really complex tasks. But the fact is, if, if his point is that um, nobody is is born on this earth knowing how to play chess, for example, um, yes, I absolutely agree with that. And the more complex the task, the more hours of practice it takes to master. But what psychologists are actually finding is that the more complex the task, the more different people become as they practice more. So there are no naturals if a natural means to just be born knowing something, but no one's naturally born knowing how to speak English either. Uh, it's the rate at which people progress that is extremely different and even more different in more complex tasks. You kind of resist to, resist to, uh, sweeping conclusions in the book um, you know, about what all this means. Um, but you suspect when you, when you look at um, the, the way that the science has progressed that it's gonna, uh, a lot more is going to be found out. A lot more interesting information is going to come to light in the next uh, few years. And it's, it's very important knowledge which you feel might... Uh, really changed the way people look at themselves. Have you given much thought, even speculatively, to, this, to the sort of philosophical implications of people understanding, um, even before they try anything, what their natural potential is? Do you, do you think there's a risk that people might sort of pigeonhole themselves uh, prematurely or uh, that this, you know, what are the consequences of this knowledge going to be? I do, I do think that's a risk, and I think about it all the time. And, and what I really think about is whether people will try to pigeonhole children. Um, and what I hope happens from this. So the reason this work is being done is in line with the original promise of the Human Genome Project, which is basically personalized medicine. And now, just as we saw for medicine, that because of genetic differences between you and I, my one um, aspirin that I take will be more or less effective than your one aspirin. We're seeing the same thing for every type of training. Because of genetic differences, some training um, affects some people better than others. Some people actually get get worse in certain health parameters from certain kinds of exercise. And we really want to know who those people are so we can say, look, this is the kind of training that will get you to the benefit that you want. We all have a totally unique genome, so for optimal development, we would all want a totally unique environment. And what I hope is that this information will be used to say, look, you can do whatever you want, but just so you know, you might be better off trying this kind of training to get this particular effect based on your biological setup. So I hope it will lead to more options and smarter training, not fewer options and more pressuring of children. The book is called The Sports Gene. David Epstein, great stuff. Thanks so much for talking. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. The woman we mentioned there who spoke to Sports Illustrated uh, sort of at the behest there of David Epstein was Renee Ann Shirley. That was a piece a couple of weeks back, really incredible piece, which outlined she worked with the anti-doping people in her country, in Jamaica, and found... um, (laughs) <laughs> found that she was banging her head against a brick wall trying to get everyone organised on the subject. So that's worth reading anyway. But as regards the book itself there, Ken, pretty interesting stuff. I do like the note that we ended on there that um, he, David feels that it's just important to, not to necessarily predetermine what yeah. a kid is supposed to be, but just get the person training in the right direction if they do have a certain talent. Yeah, yeah, it's true. I mean, it's, it's difficult because the more people find out, I suppose that it's, it's quite a natural thing. You know, if, say if you're, um, you know, if you're, uh, if you're prospectively a parent, you know, you're like, well, if if there's a chance that I can genetically engineer my child to have 
all the you know all the best copies of all the genes mm. I have, as opposed to the sort of you know the less desirable traits or the, the mutate. You know, it's it's quite be, if if you had the opportunity to do that, then that's a, I'm not suggesting that that's immediately yeah. imminent. But what is definitely I think not far not far off is is the sense where you can go and you can get your, a genetic profile of yourself. I mean, people can already do it. It's just that they don't they can't really tell you much from the, they haven't quite worked out enough about what the genes all do. But you can get a genetic profile of yourself and you say, okay, well, you know, I should be good at this. I should be, you know, yeah. I should I have I have aptitudes in these areas and not so much in other areas. Yeah. And maybe that kind of begins to dictate a little bit what you do with your life. Yeah, it's just I'm a little disappointed to be honest because I thought but, it was a good piece. Well, it was a great piece, but about halfway through, I kind of took my shoes off, rolled down my socks, <laughs> looked at the sheer school, it's the sheer scale and scope of my fat ankles yeah. and realised, that's it for me. You're I'm more, probably not going to win an Olympic gold medal in the marathon. You're more of a shire horse than, than Shergar, certainly. It's, that's, that's what it's all about. It's the ankles. Weight at the extremities, like big feet, big ankles. Yeah, forget about running, sorry, get in the pool. I'm sorry to leave it on this note, lads, but we do have to go at this stage. Don't forget, if you want to come along and be part of our live audience for our TV show on RT2, first one is on Tuesday, September 10th, after the Ireland-Austria game. Please come, we love you. Yeah, please come, we love you. And you can apply for that via Twitter and Facebook, at Second Captains, and facebook.com forward slash Second Captains. In the meantime, thanks, Murph. Thank you, Owen. Thank thanks, you. Ken. Thank you, Owen, and thank you, Kira. Thanks, Ken. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Owen. Thanks, thanks for listening. Goodbye. That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those, those, those boys. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 